After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Well, this week I had the privilege of going to a meeting here at church with some uh, former and still struggling, some of them, uh, drug addicts. I came mainly to listen and to learn. I asked a few questions and tried to gather a little bit more of understanding of where some of these folks are coming from. One thing that I was amazed to hear as I sat with these people was that most of these recovering addicts got to the point where they would spend almost anything, literally, to get to their next high. It was as if no cost was too great. One guy said that he literally went weeks without food to keep his addiction going. He weighed next to nothing. The value of the high was greater than anything else in the world. All of life had gotten to where it revolved around this feeling. They would give up their food, their cars, their freedom, their clothes, their jewelry, their homes, their health, and even risk their lives just to get high. The realization of addiction came about for many of these people when they came to the conclusion finally that life was completely unmanageable. That things that were essential to survival were being given up just to get high, just to get that next sensation at great cost to themselves and even those around them. No cost was too great. Well, all of us can measure in a way what is most important to us, can't we? By what we're willing to give up to acquire it. A well-balanced person who's responsible is someone who keeps their priorities straight, right? That's what we think of when we think of someone who's well-balanced or got their priorities right. It's someone who's able to distinguish between lesser things and greater things. Video games, for instance, might be okay. But you probably don't want to skip school, not do your homework, sit around and play them for eight hours a day for a week straight. Greater things, namely success in school and maybe a future job and graduation and pleasing your mom and dad, lesser things, have been exchanged for something small and insignificant, fun and video games, right? So you could argue that in a way that what we mean when we talk about good and bad, when we talk about what it means to to do right and to do wrong... You could look at it from the standpoint of valuing things rightly, correct? We could look at it from the standpoint of, are we living our lives in a way to where we value the right things the right way? And we refer to this word sin a lot in the church. And I've got a few little points there in the insert, to things that I might mention throughout the, the sermon that I want to have there for you. We, we refer to sin a lot in this building in this place and when we're in Christian circles. What does that mean? Well, in a way, you can look at it 
as exchanging. Sin would be exchanging something great and valuable for something that's not so great and less valuable. Undervaluing what is truly valuable and overvaluing things that are lesser. Sadly, many of us, are we not, if we're honest, are willing to give up greater things for lesser things. And really, if you know the Bible and if you're interested in reading the Bible, and I really hope that you will join us from time to time at the lunch hour and hear the Bible read, this is the story of the whole Bible. This is what you're going to find when you go and you sit down and you read the Scriptures. It's a story about a people, mainly about Israel in the Old Testament. A story about a people who were created for big things, created for a relationship with the living God, created for fruitful interaction with other creatures made in the image of God and with the creation itself for joy and fulfillment. How we exchanged all of that for lesser things. Romans 1 puts it this way, starting at verse 21. For although they knew God, speaking of all of us, speaking of mankind, although they knew God, they they neither glorified Him as God, listen closely to this, nor gave thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, you hear that word, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And it goes on in verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. You hear all the exchanges, all the greater things that were given up for the lesser things. Maybe you've heard the famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He had a sermon that I, I believe it was, it was broadcasted on the radio back when he was alive uh, called The Weight of Glory. And now you can find it in book form. It's, it's very, very powerful. I encourage you to get it and read it if you can. But he says this. Listen to this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Right? Many of us think of ourselves maybe as, as we think of sin, or we think of doing wrong things as having too much passion. Right? That's kind of the way we think of it. I've got too much passion for things that aren't, aren't right. And actually C.S. Lewis says, nope, our desires aren't too strong. In fact, they're too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. All of us have been guilty of this, have we not, in one way or another. We've all made poor exchanges, whether it be some of the folks struggling with drug addiction, or whether it be watching too much TV, or maybe not remembering the poor, whatever the struggle might be. We all do this in different ways. Our first parents, this is the great sin that they made in the garden. Adam and Eve, right? They had, God walked with them in the cool of the evening, it says in uh, Genesis. And yet they exchanged it. They exchanged it for this idolatry that had taken hold of their heart. And they ate this fruit that God said no to. There's a, a song that I really love by a man named Derek Webb. He says this, and I've traded naked and unashamed. For a better place to hide. For a righteous mask, a suit of fig leaves and lies. 
We've all done that, have we not? We've all made that exchange, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. We've all traded something great for something less. All of us have been like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And we've got our precious little thing that we hang on to. And it costs us a great deal. Well, today our passage, I think, gives us a picture of what kind of exchanges we need to be making to really get back right with God. If we are to follow after Jesus, there are exchanges that need to be made. Mark's gospel is a short and sweet gospel. It's the shortest one that we have, and it's right to the point. And every little detail that you get in these passages are very, very crucial, and there's a lot of essential information. So I want to just touch on a few things here, draw your attention to some stuff as we talk about making exchanges. Two times we find in Mark, if you look at verses 17, 18, and 20 there, just kind of keep your eyes right in that area, we find Jesus telling these men, that, or calling these men, and then they leave something behind. Do they not? Come follow me, Jesus says, and I will send you out to fish for people. What do, we, what do they do? At once they left their nets and followed him. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. From the information we have here, we don't gather that there's a list of options that were given to the fishermen. You know, Jesus didn't say, well, if you want, if it works better with your schedule, maybe I could come back and meet you here on the beach tomorrow and we can have another lesson or a talk. No, it was just a simple, follow me. One interpreter points out that this was unheard of in the Jewish tradition. Pupils actually would have chosen their rabbis and not the other way around He says this, he says, Those who wish to learn would seek out a rabbi and say, I want to study with you. But Mark is showing us that there's something Jesus, different about this Jesus person, about this this man that appeared there on the beach. The kind of authority that he had was not that of a regular rabbi. So in this reversal where Jesus calls them instead of the other way around, he's demonstrating the kind of commitment that he's calling for. It's a different kind of a commitment than the typical pupil-rabbi relationship. Somehow, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, the men that are here in the text, grasped the fact that Jesus was unique. Somehow they knew that this man was more than a mere man. Verse 15 and, uh, 14 and 15 say this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Well, maybe these men had heard Jesus' preaching, right? Maybe they had heard this message. Maybe Jesus was there a few, minutes, a few moments earlier. Mark didn't give us these details for whatever reason. He's there and he's preaching and they're hearing this message and they sense that there's something different. Just a couple of verses afterwards, if you were to read on in the passage, you would find in verse 22, it says this, The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Something different about Jesus, even in the way he taught. Somehow in this simple call, these men perceived that Jesus was unique. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, we are actually given a few more details. If you were to go to chapter 5 of Luke, you would find that there's a crowd pressing upon Jesus. It's the same account. We get, we get the feeling that this is the same story, but Mark, for whatever reason, just gives us what he feels is absolutely essential. Luke adds in a few more details and says this, that there's a crowd pressing on Jesus. So he got into the boat. It was so bad, he was probably tiptoeing on the water, about to be pushed in maybe. So he said, hey, Peter, Simon at that time, 
can I get in your boat? And basically he hops in and he pushes off the shore a little bit and he teaches them from a, maybe a few feet back there in the shallow waters so that the people aren't pressing upon him. When he finished teaching, it says that they pushed out further into the water, Jesus did, and he told Simon to let his net down in the water. He said, let it down over here. And of course, Peter's like, we've been fishing all day. There's nothing out there. Here's what the rest of the story says. But because you say so, Lord, Simon said to to Jesus, I will let it down, even though we've not caught anything. When he had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. And he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partner. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Both accounts tell us, after this interaction with Jesus, hearing his teaching, experiencing his call, seeing the catch of fish, that these men immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. One writer says this, Both pairs of brothers found that their obedience to the call of Jesus was costly. It meant abandonment of all that they held dear and all earthly security and simple commitment to Jesus. But we know, if you were to read on in the Gospels, actually that Jesus doesn't call these men necessarily to leave their professions and to leave their families. We actually see these men later on fishing. We see them interacting with their families. So Jesus, wasn't, it wasn't an absolute cut off your family, leave your job kind of call. Rather, as I mentioned with the fact that Jesus called them instead of the other way around, which was typical if a pupil wanted to seek out a rabbi. In the same way, Jesus, in calling these men away from that in that moment, maybe was just signaling something about priorities. He wasn't saying... Abandon your work completely. Maybe some people do need to do that. Maybe in some instances that is what happened. But Tim Keller points this out, that in the culture of that time, to leave your family would have been a massive ordeal. One's identity was very much tied up with the family unit. Today, what we probably relate to maybe a little bit more would be leaving our jobs. It's no big deal for people to leave their families anymore. We move around. I'm up here away from my family. Right? So that's very, very common in our culture today. So we don't feel maybe the brunt of that as much as we do the career move. But in both of these things, this is the point. Jesus is telling us that He wants priority over family and over our jobs and our careers and our vocation. There's a serious change or exchange of priorities that must take place if we are to follow Jesus. Will we be willing to give up what is lesser for what is greater? So maybe as we wrestle with these things, a question to ask yourself, are there things that we are unwilling to exchange to follow Christ along the way? Are there things that we're hanging on to that are getting in the way? Another important piece of what God wants us to see in this text this morning, I think, is this thing called the kingdom. What is that? What is Jesus is speaking of the kingdom, as you see in verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What is this kingdom thing? Well, arguably the biggest obstacle that Jesus had to overcome in all of his ministry 
was what they thought the kingdom was. What they thought it meant when they heard the kingdom of God. Or when they heard the phrase Messiah, these, these big ideas. What we learn from reading many other texts and, and passages in the Gospels is that Jesus' followers thought that the kingdom was this national, political kind of thing. They thought that Jesus was going to be this great Messiah figure who was going to take, take the Romans by storm. He was going to usher in a physical, external, political kind of kingdom and peace. Take back Israel from Rome and usher in Israeli peace or supremacy in the region or something. That's how they understood some passages in the Old Testament. Maybe there were some others that they overlooked or ignored or couldn't understand the meaning of. But Jesus spent a great deal of time teaching and showing these men that it wasn't about that. And actually, in fact, there's stories in the Gospels you'll find where Jesus almost seems to try and get the impression that He's, for lack of a better way to put it, clearing out the pews, right? There's a place where He's got, what, 5,000 people following Him. And He says, you didn't come because... You came basically for the bread. You didn't come for me. You didn't really come for the truth. You came because you saw me do the miracle the other day and you just want the bread. And what he's getting at is Jesus says, I won't be a means to an end. Jesus will not be our path to financial security. Jesus will not be our path to ministry even. Maybe some of us struggle with that. Maybe some of us feel that Jesus is a way to... Be famous, or Jesus is a way to make a name for ourselves, or whatever. We have our own ideas and agenda, and Jesus is just a means to an end. It's not really about knowing Him or following after Him. Jesus spent a great deal of time with this problem in His ministry. You will hear this throughout. He avoids the term Messiah. Some people you'll, you'll hear will say, well, Jesus never referred to Himself as the Son of God or as a Messiah. Why is that? Why do you Christians think that He is these things. He never referred to himself that way. Well, that's, that would be a huge um, assumption, misunderstanding, actually, of, of Jesus' own teaching. And you'll see some of the definitions I provided for you there in the, in the insert, which don't give you all the details by any means, but you can go study it on your own. But Jesus avoided that term, Messiah, because it was so misunderstood. If he were to break out saying Messiah, people would have had all these political, nationalistic connotations, and that wasn't what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to usher in a new political regime or anything like that. So he avoided the term. He didn't want to be a earth, an earthly king in the way we think of it. So what, did, what was the phrase that he used? Son of man, right? Jesus refers to himself as the son of man over and over and over again. It's a much less common phrase, but similar messianic um, ideas behind it. Well, the gospel or the good news that's referred to here in our text today is that Jesus has come to help, excuse me, is not that Jesus has come to help Israel rise up. It's not that Jesus has come to take back their nation or subdue their political adversaries. No, the good news is not that Jesus came to get you out of a tough situation at home. You might do that. That might be a result of following Jesus. But that's not why He came necessarily. Ultimately, to give you an excuse, say, to change careers or to avoid your problems or whatever. Yes, Jesus wants to help us in our problems. But that's not the good news. The good news was not that if you let Jesus get in the boat with you, suddenly your boat will be full of fish, right? 
That's not the good news like what Simon experienced. That your business will succeed and your life will all come together. That your kitchen sink won't ever break down. That your car will always perform as you want it to. That certainly wasn't the case for John the Baptist, was it? Look at verse 14. Where does John the Baptist find himself? Where is he? He's in prison, right? And even our Lord Himself, of course, suffered a great deal. So right at the beginning, we see here in our text again that the good news is not maybe what many people who were following Jesus in that day thought it was, or even ourselves. The good news, what is it then? What is it, Pastor Josh? Tell us this good news. What is he talking about? Why would he send these men out to be fishers of men, to share this good news? That's the, probably the, maybe the key point in the passage is, what is it? What's he talking about here, right? What is this good news? Well, look at verse 14. This is what I think. It's not fully explained here, but if it is in our text, and I think it is, this is where it is. Verse 14. The kingdom of God has come near. That's the good news. Remember what we just read a few moments ago in Luke's account? Um, it's chapter 5 of Luke where the same story is told with a few more details. When Jesus gets into the boat with Peter and tells him to cast his nets out, and Peter brings in so many fish, his boat is about to crack in half. What does he say to the Lord? What's Peter's response? Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Peter made the assumption that because he was a sinner, that this man sent from God could not be in his presence. That he was unworthy to be with Jesus. And in a way, he was right. But Peter knew that his life was filled with wrong kinds of exchanges, swapping greater things for lesser things. That he was a sinful man, an unworthy man. These simple fishermen, though they would not have been well educated, they would have understood some of the fundamentals of the Jewish faith. They would have understood some of these big principles that were taught in Judaism. One of them would have been that God is holy, and that they were unworthy to stand in His presence. God was set apart. He was other. That He was perfect. Habakkuk 1.13 says this, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil and can tolerate no sin. Simon and the others would have known that there was a separation between them and God, and that it was so great that to enter into God's presence in a wrong manner might even cost you your life. A massive, thick curtain existed in what was at the, the temple at that time. It was called the veil. Maybe you've heard of this. It separated what was called the holy place from the holiest of holies. This veil was set up in the temple. It was a massive curtain, a thick curtain, a high curtain. And it was a barrier between God and man. So that the holiness of God would not be trifled with. It was to create its understanding. There's a, a difference between God and between people. And you don't play with that difference. It protected men from carelessly or irreverently entering into God's awesome presence. There's a lot of other details about the way that room and that place was set up too that I could share with you. But even the high priest, who would have been regarded as a holy man, the one who sort of led the worship of Israel, who presided over it, as one, he would have been seen in people's eyes as one set apart from the common folks. He wouldn't have just been an old Joe Schmo or whoever that would have been a high priest, but a man that was, would have been someone that was educated and knew the religious system. A man who was pure. Not perfect, but would have been a man after God, at least ideally. But even when he went into the center of the temple to offer up a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, 
He would have to make meticulous preparations before entering, washing himself, putting on special clothing. He would have had to bring in burning incense with him so that the smoke would guard his eyes from seeing from a direct view of God. To bring blood with him to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of those around him. He would even wear a rope tied around his leg. Why? In the presence of God, if he sinned, if he somehow wasn't in the right frame of mind or did something that upset God or was against His holiness, He would have perished. And how are you going to get Him out of there? Right? They tied a rope to His leg and they'd literally pull the guy out if He died in the presence of God. It sounds wild to us, you know, in our, in our culture and in the way that we experience things. And now that we know that Christ has come and all of that, it's very hard to imagine for us. But this is what these people... This was the, the religion of the day. This is what Simon and these men, they would have understand some of these basic principles. They probably weren't the most devout Jewish people, but they would have understood these at least core principles. The entire temple system and the whole ceremonial laws and all of that that these people would have known was set up just to get these big foundational ideas across to the people. One of which, God is holy, you are not. That would have been a big part of the whole point of it all. That man could not be in the presence of God and live. Under the old system, the nearness of the kingdom to Simon would have been a bad thing. The kingdom of God's here. Whoa! That's why he might have said, you know, Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm a sinful man. But the good news, right? What does Jesus do to him? Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. Jesus is here to usher in something new. A different kind of kingdom. Simon, Andrew, James, and John somehow knew this. Listening to Jesus there from this call, this man that came and said, follow after me. They somehow grasped after this encounter with the fish and listening to him. That something, that he was doing something very big and they wanted to be a part of it. They may not have understood it completely by any means. And the story of the Gospels as we see, as we get to see these men live with Jesus and do the things that they, that they did with him that they in fact did not understand very well at all. But they found Jesus beautiful. They found his life attractive. His teaching was one of authority. And they wanted to follow. And they did. What they find in following Jesus is not a king who just asks them to make these exchanges that we've been talking about, but one who made a great exchange for all of us. This Jesus exchanged the comfort of heaven for the misery of earth. This Jesus exchanged the fellowship of His Father in heaven for the ridicule and mockery that He endured here on earth. This Jesus exchanged the glory and the honor that was due Him for a life that was mostly lived in poverty. And finally, this Jesus even exchanged His righteous record for our sinful one. Jesus exchanged His obedience and His faithfulness for our sin and our rebellion. This is what Simon and the other men would have come to realize. Jesus didn't need to depart from their presence. Jesus wanted to be with them. In fact, that's why Jesus had come. He had come for the very reason so that that men could have this intimate connection, so that you and I, all of us, could have this intimate connection with God. 
that God and man could be reconciled together once again in Christ. No need for a veil. No need for all these religious symbols and all of these rituals. No need for daily, weekly, yearly atonement, going in the shedding of blood and sprinkling the altar and doing all of these things that the, that the Jews would have had to do. No need for any of that anymore. Jesus took care of it all. To see broken, needy, guilty people like you and like me have fellowship with the living God in Him. This is why Jesus came. This is the good news. This is what it means to be. This is the gate, the doorway, the wicked gate, if you will, into the kingdom of God through this man, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you that not only does he call us, as we see today in our passage, to leave some things behind, to make this exchange for this adventure, to go and follow him and be a part of this great work in the world. He doesn't just ask us to do that. But He Himself made this massive exchange for us. That He shows us by example. Not a a king slapping us around, demanding by force, knife to our throat, allegiance. But a king who wins our heart in grace by laying down His life for us. Lord, would we... Embrace the great exchange that Jesus made. Would we embrace Jesus and all that He did for us? And in so doing, make exchanges of our own. God, maybe we need to leave something behind. Maybe there is something that's in the way. Maybe maybe we have our own agenda. Maybe we have some thoughts that are not quite right. Maybe there's a habit or a hobby or, I don't know, some sort of an obstacle that's in our way, God, whatever it be. Help us to leave it behind as Simon and Andrew and James and John did, Lord, and followed after you. God, and in return, would we see that giving up these lesser things, we actually gain a much, much greater thing. And knowing you, Lord, there is nothing that compares. And I pray that we would have that. I pray that, that all of us this morning would be willing, would lay these things down at your feet, whatever it is that's in the way, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you made that exchange for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, 